We are in a series of messages we've entitled Thriving in Babylon, and we arrive at chapter 2 today. And if you're here for the first time, this series of messages is not just about Daniel and his three friends, although there's stories in here. It's not about all these mysterious dreams and prophecies. It's about so much more. In fact, it's about what we can do thousands of years removed to thrive, not just exist as God's people when we face difficult times and difficult pressures in places that are very opposed to living faithfully for God. So we want to catch you up today. What we've covered so far, chapter 1 shows us the nation of Israel has been overthrown by a pagan nation, and the best and the brightest are pulled from their homes and their drug across the desert to Babylon. And it's here that we find or we're introduced to a teenage Hebrew named Daniel and his three friends where they become indoctrinated with occult teaching, had his name changed to reflect Babylonian culture. In fact, can you imagine having your name changed from what it is to prince of a pagan god? That's what Belshazzar means. And very likely with that, Daniel was castrated. Now, I am not going to show slides as Brad promised today, but all men, as they squirm in their seats, we want, you know, some of us read the passage and say, well, where does it say that, Brian? How did that occur? How do we know that? Well, males that served in the king's court, they had access to the king's harem, plus genealogies, for biblical characters or Near East characters in ancient times, genealogies mattered a lot. They had significant meaning because children meant old-time social security. There was no social security. Having children meant that you had uh, a legacy and someone who would care for you. And if you notice in Daniel, no children are mentioned, no legacy is granted. So we come to chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick up, we're going to read. In fact, we're going to cover the whole chapter, but we're not going to read the whole chapter, but some of it because of what is transpiring, I definitely want you to see. Daniel 2, chapter, uh, verse 1 in chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So let, let's stop right here just for a second. So you're introduced here. There are magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another word for astrologers. And so all these in near ancient times... For pagan nations, they were in the court. They were advisors to the king. They had lengthy books that would uh, show them what these dreams were. Each symbol meant something and they would interpret it. But in other words, when we look at magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, you can think of it like this. The offense, the defense, and the special teams were called to bear. All right? So they came in and stood before the king, and in verse 3 it says, And the king said to them, 
I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your house shall be laid in ruins. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But that's what they did. And they literally did that. It put everybody on notice that when the king spoke, that's what happened. Then in verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, I know you're playing games. You're buying time. I've spoken. You better come with it. Then in verse down, just in verse 9 in the middle, Therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that you can interpret, you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, now here's one place where they spoke truth. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh." Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, and notice how Daniel replies, with prudence and discretion. In other words, in fact, the word in the, he, in the Hebrew here, or actually in the Aramaic, means that he had taste. He had good taste in his words. So he's wise. And he says to Arioch, the captain of the guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven and answered and said, "'Blessed be the name of God forever and ever,' To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. And have made known to me what we asked of you. 
for you have made known to us the king's matter. Blessed be the reading of God's word. Daniel's an important book. It's important because it holds key lessons for us. Written by a man who advanced in age looking back over his life. But it holds for believers a core message. A message that God works among his people in the midst of a culture that has no real place for God. But Daniel is no easy book. It is full of these strange dreams. It's full of visions and prophecy that spoke to generations long ago and even to us today. And Daniel is the beginning of that. And in preparation for this series, and especially for this sermon, we have, as an old preacher said many years ago, we have milked a bunch of cows but we're making our own milk, or making our own butter, okay? Obviously, none of you were raised on a farm, all right? You can take milk, and you can make butter. So here is where we are. Daniel is a teen. He is there because of other choices. He's devoted to serve, and he finds himself in a precarious position. But in spite of the pressure and the politics that are around him, Daniel and his friends, they do well in the culture gone mad because they operate with trust, they operate with wisdom, and they're humble. And like Daniel, we need to learn how to face what we face today with an increased understanding that our culture really doesn't have place for God. And when we go to our culture and we go to our our co-workers that are not believers and we say, because the Bible says so, we need to understand the culture doesn't care and they do not believe. Folks, the culture war is over. We lost. Politics will never legislate morality, nor will it value God. It may in window dressing, but that's not what changes hearts. What you and I need is God. We need the presence of Jesus in our lives. He holds the answer to our attitude and our action in the world in which we live. And only when he reigns and rules and only when his wisdom and humility are present will we navigate effectively. So the probing question that I wanna answer today in the time that we have is how is it that God would have you to thrive when your life and the world around you, is, it's tough when it's confusing, when it's mysterious, when you face pressure like Daniel? How is it that you can thrive? See, people woke up the day after John Kennedy was elected president. Many of you were not alive, some of you were. But you may not know this, but after the day after, many people woke up and thought a Roman Catholic has been elected president. 
surely the world is coming to an end. When Barack Obama was elected, some concluded, surely we are near the end. While others said, there is a new day in front of us. There's new hope. And the same was true the day Donald Trump became president. Some said new day, others said, surely we are near the end. Nothing stays fixed. Presidents rise, presidents fall, politics wane, up and down. And things may seem bad from time to time. But I want you to know, folks, this is not Babylon. We're not drugged from our houses. We're not marched across the desert. Our names are not changed. Sometimes we make it out that way. See, these tipping points reveal actually where our hopes are usually or sometimes placed. And this book teaches us that kingdoms move and change. And trusting God in the midst of that sometimes can run contrary to what we feel. And feelings sometimes drive our thinking and lead us to act in ways that are not full of grace and truth, which God would have us to operate, but simply it's not what we want. But God shows us that things can be different. See, you and I, we need to understand at any given moment, your values are on display. Values are displayed in how you spend your time, what you think about, and how you spend your money. How you spend your time, what you think about, and how you spend your money. They reveal a great deal. For some of you sitting in this room, those things, if looking at an analysis of you, we would conclude, well, God's an important addition to my life. He helps me do what is right. He leads me to do what is good. But in the end, God is an add-on. You are the main theme. And you operate that you are the main theme. But there's a second way, and it is where God is seen as over all. In all of life, period. Over your life. And you begin to see your life as a trusting, humble servant of that sovereign king. This is where God is the major theme. And as you move through life, those two things are to bear. But then inevitably, as it does for every person sitting in within this earshot, pressure will mount. And when pressure mounts, it will reveal more about how you're going to operate. And if you're going to thrive and you're going to navigate life, God would have you understand that there is a way to thrive, not just exist, not just survive. So that's what I want to focus on today. And I see it in Daniel 2. First, this. God would have you face today's pressure with God as your first focus. Face today's pressure with God as your first focus. An idea that we need to clean up and to continue to be cleaning up is this notion that somehow that if you trust God 
and you seek to live as a Christian, that nothing bad is going to happen to you. Bad things happen to you, to me, to everyone. Being a Christian will not isolate you from this reality. In fact, most days you're going to face some level of pressure, some more than others. And when that pressure arises, what you do in those moments will reveal a lot about you of whether you're facing it with God as your first focus or something else. When you find yourself under pressure, what you do will reveal much about you. And with Daniel, I want you to see not only what he did, but I want you to see what he did not do. And what he did not do will teach us much about what to do. What he did not do was this. He did not go it alone. Even though he was the cream of the crop. Actually, Daniel 1.20, when you look back in Daniel 1, it says that he's 10 times better. When he stood before the king and he gave the king counsel, the scripture tells us that Daniel was, what he gave was 10 times better than the rest of those clowns. And if there was anyone that would be tempted to go it alone, he was good-looking, he's smart, and he's wise. Why didn't he just go it alone when facing this pressure? Because God was his first focus. He did not go it alone, number two. He did not call for a brainstorm session or a ways and committee meeting. Some scholars say that the Aramaic actually alludes that Nebuchadnezzar asked this crazy thing because he could not remember the dream. In fact, the construct in the Aramaic really may be that. He couldn't recall, and he was hoping that they would come along and say, this is what happened, and he'd go, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's right. I remember that. So can you imagine if he called a ways and committee meeting? They get together. And Daniel and his friends, they, they talk and they say, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to say this. Uh, uh, Neb, you and two guys walk into a bar. But that's not what he does. What he did is go to God. He goes to God and pray. And he does not go alone then. He goes to his small group. You see it. Look, look with me down here. Look at verse 17 and 18 and following. When Daniel went to his house, he made the matter known to Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions and told them to seek mercy from God. In other words, guys, will you pray with me? Will you ask God to do what only God can do? If you've forgotten... These are not mature 50-year-olds. These are teenagers. Four of them. May God grant our generation four young men or four young women or a combination of the two that when pressure mounts, they don't run around like their hair's on fire. They go to God. 
See, I'm convinced the enemy would love for us to do anything. He would love for you to do anything but two things. Hear God in his word and pray. Prayer should preempt all other actions. Like Daniel, we need mercy when we face mystery, and that's what they're facing. You need mercy when you face this. But our mode of operation is normally when pressure mounts is to act and to say, God, will you bless me? Will you help me? I'm going to do this. Act first. That's what we want to do. But when circumstances or trouble is your first focus and your tendency is to jump to action, you're not going to thrive. You're going to survive, maybe, but you won't thrive. And you, you certainly are not going to respond necessarily with wisdom. But notice what Daniel does. While everybody else is maybe jumping to action, Daniel goes to his knees. Psalm 91, 14 and 15 says to us, the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. Some of you know that you face pressure. And as a Christian, you will find yourself in circumstances where life is going to be hard and choosing obedience and trust will feel even harder. So I ask you, what's your posture like? Do you have a dependent on God posture? Or do you rail? Sometimes that's what we do. We take to Twitter and we rail. I mean, Daniel, and if he had a Twitter handle, some of those guys, not Daniel... Some of those guys be whipping the phone out and going, the king is crazy. Any suggestions? But that's not what, it's not what these guys do. They go to God. Do you have a dependent on God's posture? See, God specializes in allowing his people to get in those situations. The Israelites had it at the Red Sea. They had impossible odds. They had no place to go. It was hemmed in, seemingly hopeless. The apostle Paul individually suffering with this thorn in his flesh takes that weakness and goes to God and God does not say, get to action. He says what? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect through weakness. Are you okay being weak? Most of us not. We like power. We like to know exactly how things are going to turn out. But if you're going to thrive, you got to frame God first in focus. And we must also do this. We are to live today, live this moment, live in the now with trust, humility, and wisdom. And when we look at Daniel in chapter 2, verse 24, Daniel has Praise God for answered prayer. And then he goes to Arioch. And Arioch is the king's captain. He is carrying out this death sentence. That was his duty. 
Daniel knows Arioch, Arioch knows Daniel. And we find down in verse 24, an interesting comparison begins. Daniel to Arioch. You, Arioch, Daniel. Where do you fit? Let's look. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I want to stop there just for a second. Everybody look at me just for a second. Remember who these guys are? These are not just Hebrews, but these are the enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians that have really no place for God. They stand for everything contrary to God. And what is Daniel's response for these guys? Mercy, grace, kindness, don't kill them. You know what some of us would do? We'd go, all right, see, I've proven there's only one real God. Get rid of those guys. But I've proven I'm okay. That's not Daniel's posture. Let's see what happens here. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I'll show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and thus says to him, and I love this because the passage is so honest. Arioch says, I have found among the exiles the one. So Arioch sees an opportunity to make sure that he gets credit for something that he really has nothing to do with. Are you a glory hog? You kind of want everybody to recognize what you've done. So what's going on with the Arioch here? He wants to make sure that the king recognizes, hey, I'm still here, I'm still your captain. I found him on the exiles from, from Judah. Man will make know the king the interpretation. And then notice what Daniel does. The king declared to Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation? In 27, Daniel begins his reply. Daniel answers and says, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God. There is one of those places. A but God moment. And Daniel sees it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and is made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are those, these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came the thoughts of what will be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, look at Daniel's posture. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Wow. Do you see it? Daniel does not rub King Nebuchadnezzar's nose in it. He just simply says, God has made known this for you, king. 
Serving the king. Serving God, serving the king. And Nebuchadnezzar is vile, folks. We must live today with trust, humility, and wisdom. And what we do when opportunities are in front of us will reveal a lot about us. Do we seek recognition? Do we want credit for ourselves? And who gets credit and who gets blame reveals a lot about us. Those major and minor values are put on display. Are you more like Arioch or are you more like Daniel? See, God does in our lives what only he can do when he desires to make known to us what we need to know and he doesn't do it before. And God wants us living in confident trust in this. Or come to grips that you're going to struggle. When God doesn't do what you want him to do or he allows what you would not allow. It's in those moments that you, you and I show something. Do you know what it shows? When, when God doesn't do what we want him to do and he allows what we would not allow and it gets us all out of whack, it actually reveals something very telling. In that moment, hear me. You want to be God. And there's only one God. So how are we to frame those moments? So that we build humility and trust and it can lead us to thrive better. Understand this, God is not surprised by any moment. Not by this moment that you find yourself in. Though you might be, God's not surprised. God is also sufficient for this moment. Though I know that I am not. I wish that all of us would wake up tomorrow morning and we would, before that first cup of coffee, we would just simply be God's people who said, I can't do this today, but I know you can. Lord, I, I, can't, I, I can't navigate this effectively, but I know that you can. I, I am I'm a vessel I belong to you. Pour yourself out through me. Let me reflect trust, wisdom. Help me to be a humble man or woman. We don't like humility. Now we talk like we like humility, but we much rather be in a position of power. God is sufficient for the moment. God is to be supreme in this moment. In fact, Daniel understood this is not about him. There is a God and there is a king for Daniel to serve. Not just God, Daniel was serving the king. And God is to be supreme in every moment. And I maintain that when you and I exalt God, joy and peace will chase you. And I also want you to understand, we need to understand that when we face each moment to build humility and trust, we need to understand God is going to care for you, care for me 
in this moment. I'm not alone. But when I get all up, all, uh, out of sorts about what's going on around me, what's going on in the culture, and just what's championed as great, get upset. I'm not satisfied with God. And when I'm not satisfied with God, John Piper says it's that, that's when we sin. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So we get angry, we pout, we take things into our hands. We forget that God cares for us in the moment. Does God care for you? I think for many of us it's easiest, easy to forget. Psalm 8.4, as the psalmist was staring at the stars of the sky, looking at the heavens, he said, what is man, what is who are we that you, God, are mindful of us? Have you ever considered? Some of you may have seen these articles about sand of the seashore and stars of the heaven. But if you've never, let me offer this to you. Have you ever considered how much sand there is on the planet? How many grains of sand there are? And so no one has counted them. But there have been scientists who've estimated how much sand there is. Right now, there are approximately 7.5 quintillion grains of sand. That is 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand. So what is there more of, sand or stars? Actually, there are 70 thousand, million, million, million stars, which means there's more stars, many more than there is sand. And it's in those moments, in that vastness of all of space and the grains of sand that we go, how does God care about little old me? And we forget that if I took an eyedropper this morning and held my hand, I could drop into my hand 10 drops of water. And in those 10 drops of water are more molecules than there are stars in the sky. And what does God say about where you are? In his hand. He holds you. He keeps you. And it is Jesus who prayer prepares a place for us. We are his beloved children. But we forget about how God cares. Let me just show you an, another example. Here is my wife, Amy. If you don't know about this, we have a grandchild on the way, our first. This is an Instagram post from a couple weeks ago. That's her post that says, can't stop, help me. I'm telling you, when she laid out those, those outfits on the, the kitchen table, if I would have walked into the room bleeding from the eyes and clutching my chest, she would have never seen me. <laughs> and may not have cared. <laughs> and if my beautiful bride, who is limited and sinful, can be preparing for the coming of a child. 
that she's not seen. Why would we ever doubt when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. God cares for you in this moment. Even though you forget in the midst of your little Babylon. Third thing we must do is we must embrace a view of God's big kingdom instead of getting wrapped up in your little kingdom. What God holds for today and the future is certain. And it's brought about by his able, loving, wise, sovereign hand and it will be established forever. But we like to fret and we like to fume and we get wrapped up in ourselves and when we do, we just read right over what is really going on. I'm no scholar, but I've, like I said, I've milked a lot of cows. I've read a lot of stuff in preparation for this particular message. And I saw something that, frankly, I'd not seen before, and I didn't see anybody else writing about it. And it's a contrast between Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. In fact, let me just cover this for you. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is king and he methodically takes control, and he sleeps the sleep of the dead. He is the man. We find him in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar sleeps like a baby. You say, we all want to sleep like babies. I don't want to sleep like a baby. Babies wake up every two hours kicking and screaming. That's what they do. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar finds. He's raging and he's out of control, threatening life and limb. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar determines and directs Daniel's life and everybody else's. Again, he is the man. Chapter 2, God disrupts Nebuchadnezzar and dictates it is he is the one that rules over all. Daniel chapter 1, it's mysterious why Daniel is caught up in this mess. Daniel didn't cause himself to be in, in Babylon. He was just there. Daniel chapter 2, God reveals insight into the mysteries that face Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar reigns and everybody else is a vessel. Daniel chapter 2, God is the one that ultimately reigns. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to know that he is but a vessel. We see in Daniel 2 that God orders the rise and the fall of nations. So I'd like to show you what this dream has because what this dream has actually impacts us here in 2018. It speaks to our today. So here's what he says in verse 31 to 35. Daniel begins unpacking the dream. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood in front of you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, and the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you look, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its 
feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer on the threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this sounds mysterious. But when you began breaking it down and you know the interpretation, you began to see it in light of what only God can reveal. And what actually occurred from then. It's a great apologetics passage. So this head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire, which Nebuchadnezzar was king. And it's shiny, but it was just part of the whole. And Nebuchadnezzar's reign, or the Babylonian reign, was from 612 up to about 539 or about B.C. The body of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire that came after Babylon. And it ran from 539 to 331 B.C., The belly and thighs represent the Greek empire, Alexander the Great. And as Alexander the Great lay on the battlefield, his commanders came and said to him, whose is the kingdom? And he said, it is his who can take it. And who took it was the Roman Empire which represented in the legs of iron that ran from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. And the breaking up of these, this feat was all the Western civilization that flowed out of the Roman Empire, including all of Europe, and yes, who else? Us. Some strong, some weak. See, when we uphold God's word, we see that God's providential hand does things that we don't always understand. And when we don't understand things, we don't like the sound of that. We prefer to look at what occurs and draw conclusions, even if they're wrong. But many can be right. And we learn what we want to not repeat and what success and failures have been in our past. All we got to do is look at our own history. Isn't it amazing? We look back as if, oh, for the good old days. But no matter how hard we try, do you know that history has a tendency to repeat itself? Bell bottoms, they come back. Hippies, they just became hipsters. They just look good because they comb their hair neat and they have these really cool beards. So far, thank you, Lord, we've not brought the leisure suit back. But we look back as if the good old days are what we actually need. We think that's what the culture needs. And every generation has done this. But have you ever considered... We look back at the 50s, we had won the war, we had low unemployment, drugs did not seem to be a problem. Guess what that gave birth to? It gave birth to the 60s. Remember the 60s? An unpopular war, a nation that was actually far more divided and segregated than we cared to know. 
or are we understood? The 70s brought us more of the same and the advent of an energy crisis, political corruption in the open, and a new term, serial murderer. In the 80s and 90s, we look back on and are viewed somehow as a far better time where politicians may be different, but somehow statesmen worn out. They work together. And since 2000, racism, hate, party politics, violence, they've created a generation that, like the generations before, look up and say, you know what, we just need better education. We just need better politicians. Surely we can create utopia if we have that. And I dare say that many, maybe even of us, could be tempted to think similarly. See, our hopes are misguided and our actions as believers lack wisdom, grace, and trust in the only one who can make it right. And starting with us, it is God that will help us navigate our little Babylons. It is him that we need to trust. But it's God who establishes the kingdoms. And the kingdom that is spoken of in Daniel 2 has for us an everlasting state. The kingdom that will ultimately stand, an unshakable kingdom of Christ. It is called here the stone. Look with me at how Daniel refers to it at the end of his interpretation. Look at verse 44 and verse 45. And in those days of kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall there be a kingdom left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God after this. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Daniel spoke of this stone, this cornerstone. Psalm 118 also tells us the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, verse 16, from the New Living Translation says this. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. In Matthew 21, 24, Jesus said, anyone who stumbles over this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush on anyone that it falls upon. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, you come to Christ who is a living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Are you the living stones? And you are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What more? You are holy priests.
And we're holy priests through the mediation of Jesus Christ. You who offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And then verse 6 he says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem. Chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, hear this. The stone the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. And he is the stone who makes people stumble, but is the rock who also makes them fall. And he's speaking to the kingdoms that precede. Daniel saw that kingdom coming. He saw it coming. And it is both the now and it's the not yet. It is now for those who know Christ. It is now reigning in the hearts of those who know that Christ Jesus, who has saved us from our sins, and he reigns and he rules our hearts. But it is the not yet as we await his second coming to establish an everlasting kingdom that will bring everlasting peace and his perfect rule that is never corrupt forever and ever. You and I have a choice of where our faith is going to be. It is either in God's big kingdom and seeing it as Daniel saw it or getting wrapped up in our little kingdom. May God help us to see him over just us. Let's pray. Lord, Help us to see you. Help us to see that you you navigated Daniel through the days of Babylon and surely you will help us navigate our little Babylons. Father, help us to thrive, not just survive. Help us to grow. Help us to change. Help us to trust and to walk with humility. Only you, Lord, can do this. We We can't do this. You can do it, though. We trust you because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.